Hey coach, welcome to the Basketball Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Oliver. Let's share the game. Excited to welcome back to the podcast, Nova Southeastern head coach, Jim Crutchfield. Crutchfield has been the head coach at Nova Southeastern since 2017. The 2022-23 season was storybook from start to finish as the team became the sixth team in NCAA Division II history to finish as undefeated national champions. Crutchfield's Nova Southeastern was dominant throughout the season, leading the nation in points per game 102.5 and scoring margin plus 25.7. Crutchfield was honored as the Sunshine State, the Clarence Gaines, and NABC Coach of the Year. Crutchfield's combined record at Nova Southeastern and West Liberty is an amazing 495-82 and for an 85% winning percentage. This remains the highest career winning percentage in college basketball history among all NCAA coaches who have spent at least 10 seasons as an NCAA head coach. He tops the likes of Kentucky's Adolph Ruff, UCLA's John Wooden, and Duke's Mike Krzyzewski. Coach Crutchfield, welcome to the podcast. Glad to be here, Chris. So fun to have you back and undefeated national champion. That sounds pretty good, coach. It does. I'm going to hang on to that for at least a couple more months anyway. But yeah, quite a year last year. Quite a year and just an incredible team to watch and so much fun to dive into kind of how you guys play. But before we get there, it's been four years since we had you on the podcast. And I would describe you as the international man of mystery that so many people are fascinated by you. And there really isn't that much out there. And now there's a lot more thanks thanks to you. And that podcast helped jump, jump started a little bit, didn't it? And that's why we're doing another one. I think you might be good luck. And I haven't done a lot. Podcasts have become pretty common, but I think yours is special. So we're here again. And I don't know that I'm a man of mystery or not. I think I'm actually a fairly simple guy, but you know, I, I appreciate talking to you. I, I know that you're one of those basketball minds. It's, it's fun to be around and we share some of the same ideas. So I'm glad to be here with you today. Well, it, our last podcast helped us both because we ended up at Brad Stevens Clinic, Secret Clinic together. And, you know, a good friend of our podcast, Eric Spolster, reached out to you and just so much fun to connect with all these people. And has that been a, a big part of this process for you to be able to connect with some of these people, too? Yeah, I, I don't know if it's part of the process, but it was sure an incredible experience. You know, you're talking about a couple of guys and you know, Eric Spolstra, if you would survey who's the best basketball coach in the world, he might be the likely candidate for that. He was picked as the top NBA coach by the general managers. And he, I'm not saying he doesn't have talent, but he makes the most of what talent he has. He's got the personality that he's just a fun guy to be around. And it was an honor to, to meet with him. And and, he, and we've met again a couple of times since then. He's actually come up and watched his practice last year and brought his staff up and just, you know, for me to meet him was an honor and an incredible experience basketball-wise. And and Brad Stevens, I mean, again, you know, to go up to Boston and hang out with Brad Stevens. And I really, it was kind of funny when I went up there and you were there. I had no idea what I was getting into. You know, I, I it, it, he had said, come on and speak at the uh, roundtable. I'm Googling roundtable and I can't, I can't find anything. And I walked in there kind of not knowing what was going on, but what a nice basketball experience to be around those guys, those basketball minds for a couple of days and, and my first time in Boston. So 
I don't know about how it's done anything for me or anybody else, but it was two great experiences to meet those two coaches. And then to clarify, you ended up on the court demonstrating some stuff. So that was more than a roundtable. And it was absolutely amazing to be able to see you and you know, dive into some of the details, which we'll do today as well. I just want to reinforce something because I think the thing that stood out about the last podcast, which I think resonated with so many people, was the fact that your practice style is to play basketball in practice. And you're not a lot of drills, not a lot of fancy stuff. You play basketball and you coach the game while they play basketball. Can you talk a little bit about that? And it hasn't changed any. Um, we do go live a lot. We do some drills. We do some drills. Most of them are for warm-up purposes. You know, I've always kind of been a little concerned about the carryover from drill work to game day. I, I found myself hitting the whistle more this year than in previous years. I, I think, you know, after last year's success we lost a lot of players and i had to sign 10 new guys and it's a new system for almost everybody on the court so i i feel like before i can get things up and running with a lot of live play which we're doing i find myself saying hold on a second before we move on let's let's take a look at some things so i feel like this year i've been hitting the whistle more but we're still going live still playing games to 100 120 but i find myself saying we got to stop for a minute this year so it's a little different but the philosophy has not changed any and we've had some success the last few years so we're really not looking to change a whole lot yeah nor should you and when you mean hitting the whistle they're playing basketball live and then you're stopping them and coaching them in the context in which the things that you want to intervene with are happening and then they go live again is that how it looks yes and you know you know i'm I'm hitting the whistle and saying, trying to get them to stop where they're at, as opposed to, so I want to look at a situation that's on the court. And I'm not talking to, I'm kind of talking to one guy, but I've talked to our players about, don't make me say this again. So when I'm talking to player one, players two through 15 have to be tuned in to what we're talking about. It could be something about the good decision to double in the press or a bad decision offensively to where to move the ball to. And I want everybody to hear it. And I tried to hit it. And with a matter of maybe 10 seconds, maybe 15, if I need to walk through a couple of things. But, you know, as a coach, sometimes if you talk too long, the player starts, when you see them leaning back and forth with their legs, like my legs are getting dead here, coach. I want to stop it just long enough to make a point. Hopefully something that's maybe we can correct in the future and then get back to live play before they say, I need to get warmed up again. So we're usually talking anywhere from five to 15 seconds when the his, when the whistle is hit to the time we say, take the ball out, let's go, let's, let's get out again. Um, list, listeners know I align with this completely, coaching them within the context of the game, coaching them while they're playing basketball. Give us a perspective on what your practice plan looks like then, because you said you mentioned these games that you're going to play within practice. That doesn't really change, right? So what does your practice plan look like? Does it have specific outcomes that you want to achieve from a certain practice? Because it's not listing just drills and skills. You know, I'm not sure that we can say, well, this is what we're looking for at the end of the day. I think it's a long, drawn-out process of slowly getting better as opposed to today we want to achieve this. However, there is a focus of the day usually. You know, it, it could be, you know, today – we haven't ever changed about our philosophy on, let's say, offensive rebounding. And we want to send three or four guys to the boards and one or two guys say, I'm angling back at a certain angle. But today we're pushing we're pushing that one harder. And you know, I'll talk to them about it before practice. And during practice, then I have the assistant coaches looking for that particular thing more. 
But, you know, again, you're too young to remember the Ed Sullivan show. But I always use this example. There was an act that used to be on there all the time where this guy would come out and he would spin all these dishes on poles. And he would have like 20 or 30 dishes and he would spin them on the top of the pole. But as soon as he would get three or four of them going and get the next one, one of them would start to slow down. And he had to run back to it to spin it faster again. And I've got that picture in our locker room about me. That's what I do. Because as soon as I, I focus on rebounding, and then we focus on transition offense. And today we're focusing on court defense. As soon as I get six days away from offensive rebounding, that plate starts slowing down. It's like I went over it, but now I've got to hit it again. It's like you think you've got it taken care of, but it's like that spinning plate. If you don't readdress it, it slows down and it's going to fall off and break. So a long analogy there of a metaphor of how, how coaching works here. I feel like every day we, we're hitting on some topic, but it doesn't mean once I hit it, it's done for good. It's never done for good. You know, we have to continue to go back to it. So a long answer to your question, but yeah, I think it's a long process, but every day there are specific things that we talk about. Let's focus on this today. Well, it's a beautiful analogy, Coach, because I, I totally get it. And without actually watching the show live ever, but uh, I totally get it. And uh, part of it is because you are playing basketball every day in practice, those situations are constantly coming up that you want to hit on. And uh, I would say the other part that goes with this, I, it, just in understanding your style and seeing the analytics of your style, you probably do the best job of any team I've ever been around at instilling the way you want to play on your opponent. Is that a conscious process? You want to play a ton in transition, and then you're trying to get them to play a lot in transition as well. Right, because if, if we just ask them to play a full court transition game, they might say no. So we, we have to do it. Don't let to, them say no, do you? The, uh, that's the idea. You know, We have to put out a game that says, you're going to play it our way. And regardless of that, there's still going to be a certain percentage of the game that's going to be played in a half-court set or maybe a way that we're not comfortable with. But we're trying to change the numbers where you know maybe instead of playing – 70% of the game and a half-court set, we want to play 30% of it and a lot of transition basketball. But we do talk a lot about what you just said. We'll play it if we ask them to. We have to force them to play that way. And it comes with full-court pressure. It comes with some risky defense and occasionally some double-teaming. And, you know, if you're in full-court pressure defense and you're not double-teaming and their guard gets the ball with one guy guarding him, and if he clears the court out and says, everybody get out of my way, and I'm going to bring it up one-on-one, you defeated the purpose. You've now slowed the game down, and we're looking to speed the game up. So that risk of a double team has to be there, and we have to work on that all the time. And a lot of times if you double team and the ball gets out, then they have advantage of numbers. And then they're more likely to say, we have a four-on-three, we have a three-on-two, we're going to go to the rim, we're going to get a shot off, which speeds up the play. And it kind of it, it kind of feeds into what we want to do, However, in that same process, we can't let them get a good shot. And that's what's tough. It's tough to say, we're going to speed things up, but not give you a high percentage shot. That's really difficult to do defensively. And you know, that's, you know, everybody kind of looks and say, well, I like to play basketball the, the way you're playing basketball. It's up tempo, score a lot of points. It's just not easy to do because you have to force the pressure. As you said, they won't do it just by – asking them to do it, you're going to have to force them to do it. And then 
you want to win doing it. You just don't want to force a tempo. You want to win, which means you've got to make them take bad shots. You got to turn them over some, and you have to get your good shots on your end. Does it require a certain calm understanding on your part as the head coach to watching it? That, as you said, sometimes it's risky, sometimes things won't work out, but over the long run, you have faith in what this is going to be. So you're not going to overreact to any single situation. Yeah, I would say I have faith in it. And it's, it's about players making good decisions on the court, but getting them to that point where they're making good decisions is the the hard part about practice. When we're in, and it's hard to dictate the players, it's not as easy as saying, okay, we're in a dominant one press, you cover the sideline, you cover the middle, and you know where to go. Because as you've seen, every situation is different. And a kid will say to me in practice, especially a, a newer player, should I go double in that situation? And I can only say, in this situation, here's what I'd like you to do. But this situation is never really going to happen again. It's going to be different. It's going to be different personnel, different spacing. The other team's going to have a different philosophy, how they're going to attack our pressure. We have to make decisions based on the situation at hand. And that's the really tough part, too, about this thing about giving players that option of saying you're you're going to apply pressure, but you're going to have to make some quick decisions in it. And when they get numbered advantage, you've got to be fast to rotate out so that numbered advantage disappears. And what looks like a three-on-two turns into a three-on-five before they know it. And... It's just really a harder thing to do defensively, what you're talking about. And that's kind of what we're into right now with all these new players. We're just not there yet. It's it's hard to get there. And in today's world where you don't get players for four or five years, I think it's getting harder to coach our system. No doubt. And you know, you can't memorize a solution and then repeat it over and over again is what you're saying. But I am curious, especially let's start with defense. Are there any absolutes on defense beyond playing hard and being in shape in terms of the tactics that you're trying to apply? Yes, there are. There, there are some ab- absolutes. You know, one would be the ball doesn't pass you on the dribble. You know, some you know, we don't like guys playing Ole defense and the ball doesn't pass you on the dribble. And we've got a handful of rules. Some of them are more specific to, you know, if the ball's from the sideline and you're one of the guys back, when you come up and not, there there are definite rules. It's do- the, the pressure is dominated by decision-making. However, mixed into it, there are definite rules. And if even if we're in, we have rules like if we're not in full-court pressure, and we're, we go into three-quarter court pressure, for a little, we, and we have changed that sometimes. But if one guy steps up and denies, the rule is if one guy goes, everybody goes immediately. And you can't have one guy pressing and other guys not denying an inbounds pass. So there's there's probably a handful of rules that we have that go along with our pressure, but there there's, it's more based still on decision-making. I've heard that you have a point system to the trapping, and that's how you determine a little bit of the value of a good trap versus not. Is that is that something very specific with analytics, or is that more just again situational based on what's happening? You know, we don't really have a point system, but we talk a lot about risk versus reward, and say let's look at this trap. Let's look at this trap and look at what what's the possible reward out of it. What's the chance of getting a turnover, and then what's the risk. And they have to understand that risk versus reward. And sometimes there's a blatantly obvious, there is no risk. We should be double teaming and pressuring. If some guy has fallen down in the backcourt, and that's your guy, then you should be double teaming. So some of them are obvious. 
And there's sometimes there's obvious don't don't leave the best shooter in the country. It's in the corner to go double on the wing and and give up a three to him. So there's an obvious sometimes one way or the other. But usually there's a lot in the middle, too. And I will tell players that, like, you go, should I go on that time or should I stay that time? I would have said 50-50. Either way, it's a pretty good decision. And we'll ro- we will rotate and everybody will adjust accordingly. Every now and then those blatant ones are, you know, they're, 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 when a guy is in the backboard and someone would hand him the basketball right beside him and we don't double team that, then I would say, well, that's a rule. You know, if they got two offensive guys standing right by the ball, we're double teaming that ball. That would be a rule. If a guy misses that one, then I would then I would get on him and say, look at the risk, no risk, look at the reward, good time to trap. So they have to understand the risk versus reward. And the other thing we use is a stoplight about the, the red, yellow, and green. And the green is, heck yeah, go trap, go take a risk. The yellow, sometimes if, if we've been trapping in the back where the ball gets out and they have numbers, we're now in red. We are behind. It's a scramble. If all of a sudden they would start to pull it back, it might be a little bit of yellow. And if they pull back too much, it's like we're back to green again. So our players have that stoplight mentality and kind of ingrained them of red, yellow, green. Red being we are now in survival trying to stop their numbers break. Yellow being, wait a second, this could go either way. And green being, heck yeah, a strap. So what might, from the outside looking in, if you don't know, it might appear that sometimes you're calling the press on and off or half court or trap or no trap, but really most of it is opportunistic based on the advantage that the defense can find, as you alluded to, decision-making. Opportunistic is probably the, the, the best description, and that word is on the board. You know, We need to be opportunistic on offense and on defense. It allows the, the players of freedom to, to see the game clear, and if you don't see the game, you don't see opportunities. And that's the one we preach the most is learning how to see the game, you know, and once you start seeing the game better, then you see the opportunities and you start making better decisions. You can't make decisions if you don't see the game. And that's the one defensive pressure. Yes. Opportunistic is probably a key word and it's a characteristic of our players. It's probably way more important than other programs. Well, and can you explain a little bit opportunistic on offense? Because I think sometimes what's not understood is how both your offense and your defense complement each other in terms of the style and the desired outcomes, right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and you know, especially defense triggering offense, without a doubt. But I remember a long time ago, about 15 years ago, we played a, a first round regional game. And in the other coach's interview, he said something I think that's one of the nicest things the best things he ever said about our program. And he said, if you make one defensive error, it doesn't take your whole team, but if one guy makes a defensive error, then you pay the price. And I thought, wow, I hope he's right, because that's what we've talked about a million times, about seeing the opportunity when it's there. And if you watch games, the more controlled you are, there is tons of opportunities that are bypassed to get to maybe the play you're going to run or just something more controlled, or maybe you just don't see it. And those opportunities sometimes only last a half a second, you know, but when you see them and all of a sudden you can step into a scoring opportunity, that's really important. But one of the hardest things is seeing the opportunity, seeing when it's there, seeing maybe when it's going to happen. You know, if, you know, if you're playing against a two, three zone 
and you throw the ball to the wing and the forward and the guard both go to the wing, which happens sometimes, or you're going to bump the forward down. And all of a sudden you get two defenders on the ball and the ball is immediately kicked back to the top. Well, that zone has been taught how to react, but for a split second, you're four on three. When that ball kicks back for a split second, you're four on three. I think that's kind of a microcosm of seeing opportunities. It's almost like the guy who's getting the ball back at the top of the key has to understand before the ball hits his hand, there's an opportunity here that if I can cash in real quick, we may have a shot. But if I'm a split second slow and I hold the ball, they will get back into the correct position. So that opportunity you see offensively, Boy, it's, it's tough to teach that one, too. I think natural instincts come into play on that a lot. Guys that see things, an opportunity to score. We look, we talk about it. We look at it in practice. I do hit the whistle and say, look, we were in a position to get a shot. And I'm really – I look at things a lot, and when they don't get a shot live, and I'll go back and say, we should have got a shot out of that. And I don't promote shooting quick. I sure as heck don't want to see a bad shot. But I would feel like if we had a chance to get a good look, we should be able to get that good look. So when that coach said, well, if you make a defensive mistake, you pay. I thought, that's what we're trying to do. I hope he's right, because that is our ultimate goal. First time a defender has his back turned, doesn't matter if they're for doing, we get the shot. The way I explain this to coaches and the, I mean, the way you play offense is the epitome of this, is that basketball decisions supersede basketball plays. That the, the decision when you have an advantage is what you want more than to run this play. And I'm curious because of that, do you start from a spacing template or a principle of play philosophy? Is that how you start to teach and install your offensive philosophy? You know, that's a good question because I've kind of debated how I want to start our philosophy and how much do I just do dummy and walk through. And, you know, we talk, uh, you know, I've started this year, We've talked about all the ways you can potentially score, whether it's a ball screen, you know, and, and a screen and roll or screen and pop or penetrate, drive and kick, penetrate and dish or a foul shot or a post up or an isolation for a drive or a midline drive for a pull up jump shot or a handoff in transition. You know, and I list on the board, you know, the 50 ways of potentially scoring and say these are all in our offense and they're all in our motion offense. We have some set plays. You're going to recognize some of these things in our set plays. But the question is, how do we get these things into motion offense? So we're constantly attacking. And then we go to the court and we do it dummy. And I say, you got 30 seconds. So with good spacing, because we're looking for a chance for someone to catch the ball and have an opportunity to drive with no one in his way. We're looking for a guy that posts up without secondary help. So dummy I'm going to make you guys go through this. And with 30 seconds, the coaches will count how many good scoring opportunities these guys think they have. And they'll say, yeah, you know, coach, he, I made a good back cut. I said, well, you made a back cut, but there was a guy standing on the block. That doesn't work. So we start off dummy looking at possibilities. Then we say, let's put a defense in. And then all hell breaks loose. It's just crazy that. And then I get into the, it's time for me to start hitting the whistle and saying that you should go there, you should go there. So I, I don't think I have a really good rhyme or reason for how I teach it. It kind of goes back to me saying, well, that's not good. That doesn't make sense. And every now and then when they come down and all of a sudden they are just spaced well and there's a back screen out transition and all of a sudden the guy makes a hard basket cut which brings an extra defender and we kick it out and our best three-point shooter 
gets a shot, I just jump up and say, that's incredible. I over applaud it too much. The guy who makes the good cut that causes a shot, you know, I, I just applaud it to the point where I'm thinking, I got to get some positive reinforcement here. So it's like a number of ways to try to hit it. But at the end of the day, I've always felt like we just look like crap on offense. I watch us play. I thought we just look so bad, yet we scored 100 points. And I've always talked to players about just think if we ever get good at this motion. Just think if we ever get good at spacing and using each other, how good we could be then. And there's only been a couple of times I felt like, now we're getting pretty good at it. Usually, I don't think we're very good because there's so much room for improvement. I've had that conversation with many coaches about watching your offense coach. Just that, that like, number one, you couldn't sit there and diagram. I know you run some sets, but generally you can't diagram anything that's going to come. And secondly, kind of the beauty of it is the imperfections, because sometimes there's really imperfect spacing, but from that becomes an advantage. And maybe some of that non-traditional type stuff really does have an impact because the defense is so prepared to cover very traditional things. And if you think of that from the opposite side, if a defense is spending all their time in these perfection drills on defense, you're really set to take advantage of those type of teams in particular because they aren't as conceptual in their ability to make decisions and figure it out versus your offense. I know that's a long-winded way to kind of no philosophy, but I just I really it. have been fascinated by this. I, I get it. And I've talked to our players about it too, about, you know, so many people are on the screen and roll and they put two guys on, on one side and they have a rise guy on the other. And the defense for that has become almost like a dance move where it's like, you do this. We, it's like, it's so, it's so common that the defense is almost just in tune. I help for a second and you come back and it's, it's like, it's like two couples that learn how to dance together. And what you've talked about, I've actually talked to our players about if it comes down to not cutting to the basket or guys overcutting. And by overcut, I mean two guys cut to the rim at the same time and collide in the middle of the lane. And I've said overcutting is not that bad. And here's why. If two guys cut to the lane and they collide with each other, all, all I ask you to do is explode off in different directions. And it's been a mistake. We don't want two guys running the lane and running into each other. However, not one team that we play against has practiced or talked about if they have two guys that run into the lane and run into each other, what we're going to do then. So it's exactly what you're saying. The screen and roll with the rise guy, they've practically seen a million times. Two guys cutting into the lane that collide with each other, that could cause a defensive error. And it's, it's a bad offense, just like you said, that could end up actually being a good thing. Coaches, a brief interruption from the podcast to talk about Hoopsalytics. With basketball season approaching quickly, do you have an affordable, powerful stats and analytics system in place yet? Rather than overspending on the same old antiquated stat system, you can get cutting-edge video link stats and deep analytics at around half the price you're paying now. Hoopsalytics analysts will break down games for you so you can instantly measure the effectiveness of your players, lineups, and player combinations. And you can add tracking for your unique plays, sets, and actions to see what's working and what needs to be improved. You can even measure shot quality and things like contested and uncontested shots to improve your offensive points per possession. Features like interactive shot charts, game timeline visualizations, assist maps, and more makes Hoopsalytics an invaluable resource for coaches of all levels. Discover how Hoopsalytics can help you save money and make better data-driven coaching decisions. 
Visit hoopsalytics.com slash ball today to learn more and start analyzing your games for free. That's H-O-O-P-S-A-L-Y-T-I-C-S dot com slash ball. Well, to put words to it, chaos theory, uh, which I'm sure you studied a lot back in your time, but random states of disorder and irregularities. It just seems to counter what traditional defenses are set to do, as you said, that dance recital. They can't dance recital against you. That's what we're hoping for. And we need, but we need to keep attacking and not be as predictable. And, and, and there's a lot of ways to score and we need to explore all of them. Are there, and we, we asked you about the, the press, about some absolutes. Are there any absolutes for the offense? Hmm. You know, I'm sure there are. I tend to make up rules as I go along each year. And in practice yesterday, it was... Coach, everyone's sitting here going, you are the all-time win percentage leader in college basketball. And it's just beautiful that it is just this way, that you can't send us a set of notes and you can't articulate it specifically. But when we look at it, we know what it is. It's beautiful. Well, I keep getting people wanting me to send them our stuff. I don't, I don't have any. There's no stuff to send, is there? But, I, you know, it's kind of funny in practice yesterday. This is, a, I just put a rule in. I said, you know... I'm tired of seeing one-handed passes. You know, you, you guys, you're not George McGinnis and palming the ball, and there's no reason for it. So I, I know they look at me as like, you're too old school, coach. But I said, you know, we can't afford to turn the ball over. Guys are getting too casual. So I said, okay, new rule. No more one-handed passes. You know, keep the ball into two hands until they're released, left or right, one hand off the push. But no more this cupping the ball in one hand. I know John Stockton did it, and I love John Stockton, but he was really good at it. And you guys aren't that good at it. So when you're as good as John Stockton, maybe so. So, yeah, I, I put rules in as we go along, and that was what I put in yesterday. So all skill acquisition, motor learning, this, these are, this is called a constraint-led approach to coaching without you, know, you ever defining it or knowing that. That's what it is. You're saying this is a must right now within the context of how we're practicing, but you're going to turn these musts into possibilities as the year goes on, right? Like the goal is not to say no one hand passes. It's just no one hand passes right now. I don't know. We'll see. Okay. But <laughs> your team good? last year threw one hand passes. They did. You know, I'm, I'm thinking back to when we opened up and Wes Leary was pressing the finals and Dallas Girls only reared back into a baseball pass the length of the court to R.J. Sunohara. I don't want to stop that. I, I think the point being made is we can't afford to turn the ball over by being loose with it. And, and, and I may lighten up, but if all of a sudden I like the way we look, I may say, well, let's just keep it in there. It, it's, it's about winning and it's about not losing the ball. And anything that like we can make a rule that, that lines up with those two things, but we'll put them in. You know, it's it's it is a different system, but it's and I don't think it's easy to coach this way. I think it's easier to coach when you've got a specific guideline. You know, it's like running a play or teaching flex offense. We can all teach flex offense. We can all say you didn't cut off the shoulder. You the screen wasn't used properly. Let's let's correct it because you know exactly the screen is going to be set and how it's supposed to be set and how to cut off of it. It's just harder when I don't even know what's going to happen next, not just in games, but in every single day in practice. So I have to constantly try to evaluate and say, stop for a second, let's correct this. It's, you know, and so people ask for, give us your stuff. I don't have any stuff. My assistant coaches are kind of mad at me because every day at the end of practice, I crumple up the practice pan as I'm walking off and throw it in the garbage can. 
and they're like, don't you want to keep that? Like, nah, because who knows what tomorrow's going to bring? I'm the next year, next year's. I don't want to follow last year to this year. Let's let's see previous day differently. Yeah, I'm so aligned with this as well. And I mean, I'm going to jump around a little bit just to take advantage of some of our time together. But I'm curious about the back line of your press, because everyone in the back line of their press is sort of obsessed with the distance of that player from their check, et cetera, et cetera. Do, do, you, do you have any kind of constraints for the deep player? Because they seem to play pretty far off their check if they can. Is that fair to say? Yes. Yeah, you know, we want to dare you to throw the bomb. And so the question would be, if I'm guarding you and you're back towards your basket, you're a big guy saying, throw the bomb to me, I'll score. And the question would be to my defender, how far can you get off of him and still feel like you could make it a jump ball? And that's whatever that distance is, we will maximize that to the absolute extreme, saying if you can get 27 feet off him, you get 27 feet. If a guy comes in for him that can't quite jump as high and it's not as effective, you can go 28 feet. You have to know how far you can get off. You have to keep contact with him visually. You have to look at the guy taking the ball out of bounds. What kind of arm does he have? Everything has to be weighed, and you get off him as far as you possibly can. If we got guys that are standing beside you, you're back at the foul line, and we got a guy standing beside you, we have already made a huge mistake. It has allowed too big of a gap. For the other four guys, they're breaking the press where we won't be able to apply good pressure. And, and we demonstrate this a lot in practice about the further you can get off that guy in the backcourt on the back line, the better easier it is for the guys that are face guarding at the foul line. So if they're going to, if we're going to face guard the foul line and they're looking at throwing over top of our face guarders, do we have a guy behind there that they say, wait a second, if I throw over top, that might guy, he may come sprinting up and get a hand on the ball. If they've got an enormous gap behind them, well, they're going to throw over top and they're going to have a number break on us. So those guys have to get off. And if they send two guys back to the foul line, and they, we don't want to send two guys back with them, we'll send one guy back that can get to either one of them, another guy even closer. So the bottom line is those guys that you're talking about on the back line, they will be as close to the basketball as it's taken out as humanly possible. And you mentioned advantage situations on offense, taking advantage of those advantage situations, but defensively, because you play this way in practice, your players get used to defending these disadvantage situations as well. They seem to be not phased. And it's amazing how many times you seem to break up advantages for the offense defensively. Is that a conscious process? It's not a drill. It's just that you practice this way all the time. So they have to get used to it. We, we practice it every day, more in the fall, because it's, it's tough to, to play this type of game day in, day out. So when the season hits, we're into that 30-game schedule or whatever, we scale it back a lot. We, we play uh, a few possessions here and there, but we don't do games to 100 once the season starts. That, that's done this time of year. But they do need to play it. They need to become familiar with every possible way to break pressure, four across, three across, break two guys, break one. You know, everybody's got a solution. You know, everybody started running kind of what I call the football play. They put all four guys on the, on the baseline, like you're hiking in the backyard and tap and pass. And they all take off around their, their patterns. So we've seen every every possible press breaker. And we, we've kind of said we've got to have a solution for all of them. We can't be like, oh, that one's got us. We, we need to come up with a way to pressure any way they decide to break the pressure. And on paper, they have the advantage. If you draw, we double, they got an open guy, they throw to him. 
So it has to be crazy, hectic kind of movement and motion and hustle to maybe get a turnover, you know, because honestly, that's why people don't press because it doesn't make sense on paper. Uh, it allow it exposes the basket that's going to be scored on and potentially gives up number advantages. It's risky. So you have to work on it. You have to practice it every day. And when the season starts, you got to be ready to go. And you got to watch some film saying you, you could have done better here. You could have been faster there. You mentioned the football style and, and some teams really do seem to like, they're not trying to inbound fast. They're trying to get organized. And then there's other teams that seem to try and get it in quickly against you. Is there one of those philosophies that seems to give you more uh, trouble in terms of trying to get your team prepared to play against? I can't answer that one. Yeah. There's too many people out there that would uh, say, oh, that's that's what they don't like. There's some that we, we probably think we struggle against a little bit more, but we have a we have a backup plan for everything. And we've run a team. Some teams take it out fast. And, you know, we've been pretty good against that because sometimes if they get in fast to a guy on the fly, it leaves one of their players, the guy took it out of bounds, 40 feet behind the ball sometimes, which now we've got a guy who's not involved in the offense. we got an extra defender to, to use the trap then. And teams that line up, sometimes that gives us trouble. Sometimes, you know, we, we've got a good solution to it. What we have to do really is feel like, We've got to the point where it doesn't matter what you do. We're ready for it. And if you want to you want to play up-tempo, we're fine because we play it every single day. And if you want to slow it down, be more methodical, maybe we can pin our ears back a little bit more because maybe you're not quite as a risk. But I think the best example was probably if you watched the championship game. You had two teams that played the exact same game in Nova Southeastern and West Liberty. I think we were both pretty much ready to be pressed. We played every single day. They played every single day. We were under pressure, but I think we were probably more comfortable with it than any team that West Liberty has ever played before. So we're ready for just about anything is, is what we're trying to get to. Well, you proved that this year for sure. And that was a heck of a game. If coaches didn't watch it, go watch that game. A uh, really impressive level of basketball. And for you guys, you mentioned shot selection a little bit when you talked about offense. What is considered a bad shot in your system? Yeah, The shot itself, I don't think, dictates the bad shot because there's some guys that like, that's a good shot for you, but not for you. You know, and, and we try not to have players think in a negative way. I, I really think... It's the percentage. It's you know, We talk about percentages. And the one stat that we've probably been the best at that I don't think people talk about very much, you talk about points scored and they talk about turnovers forced and turnover differential, and those are big. For the last 15 years, we've been one of the highest shooting percentage teams in the country. And we've led it a few times. Over the last 15 years, we've been at 50-plus almost every year. And – it has to do maybe with a few easy buckets, but also we shoot a lot of threes too. We shoot our, our share of threes. So there's threes mixed in. When guys are shooting a low percentage, then it's time I step in. And I say let's let's address the problem. You know, if you're shooting 39 percent from the floor, or it, and you're not a bad shooter, then it's your shots. You know, if so, we talk to each player individually a little bit about what we think is a good shot for them, and you know, even like somebody shoots a 17 footer. I, I that's a shot that you don't see very often. It's a long two. Most coaches say, no, don't don't shoot that one. I kind of say that, but I got a guy on my team right now that's so accurate from 17, but 
not a great three-point shooter, kind of rare. And I think, all right, you know, for you, it's a good look. It's a high percentage shot. But it's you know, written all over our grease board, high percentage shots with guys in rebounding position. And if we can shoot 50% and get a good a high percentage of them back when they don't go in, then we're going to be hard to beat. So we look at each player and decide what is a good shot, what's, what's not a good shot for you. But I think it's all there. Threes, mid-range, floaters, layups, dunks, back to the baskets, shots that go in the basket. 50 different ways to get a shot. I love that. Coaches will be asking for that list too. How much offensive skill work do you do? I mean, obviously you recruit skilled players. That's part of the goal, but your, your players are really skilled in all, all facets of the game, it appears. Yeah, I've tried to skip things in practice that I feel like maybe get warmed up, but they don't develop any skill whatsoever. So like traditional layups, we don't do those in practice. We get two lines and the guy's coming in. But we do something similar called two-man stuff, which is now yeah, it starts off with the guy drilling half court, the guy's running a lane. Because how often in a game are you running to the basket? Some guy in the basket just flips through the ball and says, shoot a layup. So that's kind of – it's not a game shot. But we do two-man stuff, which is, you know, passing, penetrate, kick, screen and roll, handoffs, all the stuff that you would do with a partner that kind of have – you and I got a little chemistry together, two-man stuff. We do – and it's warm-up. And we warm up with some three-man stuff, you know, screen the screen or pop up, catch the ball. So we say we don't do a lot of drills. We do them warming up, and they're usually developing a skill. We shoot the ball outside of practice a lot. Our guys have to kind of have a responsibility. I, I don't want to spend 35 minutes of practice shooting the ball. But our, our guys do get shots up on their own and develop their shot. The offensive skills – I, I think I'm probably a little different. I think you develop your offensive skills in live action too. But probably a good example would be, you know, dribbling the basketball. I've had some guys look great ball handling. You know, when it comes to doing figure eight dribbling and stuff, they're they're like clinic type guys. But then we divide the court into about a third of width. And I put a guy one on one, I'll say you got a third of the court to get the ball from one end to the other. And some of those guys that are clinic type dribblers, they lose the basketball a lot. And the only goal here is get the ball to the other end of the court without losing it. And there's a guy on defense that says, your job is do not let him get the ball to the other end of the court. Get a hand on the basketball. And you might be surprised sometimes about who can get it to the other end consistently and who can't get it to the other end. So I think that would be a skill development that's more game-oriented. So when they lock up a guy one-on-one, I say, go and take it up. He doesn't lose the ball. So we do more of that type of thing than I think traditional ball handling. Well, and it would strike me. I mean, certainly I would say that your player development and your team development happen at the same time based on how you practice. And that's kind of the point you're making uh, for that. And you don't have to account for all these individual little drills because you play basketball in practice. Big part of it. The other thing, Coach, that stood out last time that we talked was a lot of people ask, like, your guys are extremely fit. You need to be fit to play this way, et cetera, et cetera. And you mentioned that you don't do a lot of off-season type of conditioning as traditionally is talked about. You play a lot of pickup in the off-season. Can you just highlight a little bit more about how you get your guys fit and ready to play this style? And the pickup is a different type of pickup. It's full court, face guard, uh, chasing from behind, and it's exhausting. It is exhausting to play the type of full court open gyms that we, we put together. And I, I really am a firm believer that it's so much more effective because you 
condition yourself mentally as well as physically about how to run, where to sprint, not just running. And, and we've done a few suicides here and there to start the season, but almost none. Sometimes we'll put it in for losing team runs, a couple suicides or something. But for the most part, all of our conditioning is done in live action. What I have to have an agreement with on the players is you have to push yourself. You know, I know you're getting tired and you don't feel like chasing the guy down from behind, but you have to. That's the rule. That's how you're going to get in shape. And and I've threatened them. If you don't do it, then we can put the basketballs down and we'll be like everybody else in the world and we'll just start running like crazy. I don't want to do as a coach. They don't want to do as a players. I just feel like your ability to run and condition yourself is even better if you have a reason to run. And even an old guy like me, I, I can't go out here and run. I just can't. If you said run from point A to point B, I'm like, I can't do that. But if you put me on a tennis court and there's a ball going, I'll chase it down like a mad dog. So I think, and I, and I think the players feel the same way. You don't, you don't feel the running if you got a reason to run, but they got to push themselves. That's the agreement. We'll see you this year, right? Right now, there's been a couple of days we were on the verge of putting the ball, balls down. <laughs> we'll see if we can survive another couple of weeks without doing that. Well, you mentioned two new guys, so, or 10 new guys, so that's got to be a part of that process, right? Oh, yeah, definitely. Have you enjoyed that part of trying to figure it out with 10 new players and really kind of get them to understand the system? Has that helped you kind of like dive in a little bit more in terms of what you normally do? I would say enjoy, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like, you know, What's, what's that game that everybody plays in the in the morning? My wife plays it where you there's a five-letter word that you have to find Bottle it. In. Or one of those things. Uh, I, yeah. yeah, it's like that where it's challenging. It's not fun, but it's like you want to do it anyway. We're like, why do people get 500-piece puzzles and they struggle to, to find it? But there's some kind of enjoyment to get out of it. That's the kind of enjoyment I'm getting right now. There's this real struggle, but somehow I kind of enjoy it. I'm enjoying the challenge, I guess. There's a struggle. Uh, it's, I guess, enjoy. I don't know if that's the right word or not because I'm not happy a lot sometimes, but I'm, I'm kind of fueled by it. There's a little bit of adrenaline going through my veins saying, you got to get this done. And, and I feel like you know, we're struggling right now a little bit with 10 new guys and a system that takes time. And I feel like even though it's a struggle, I'm glad I'm doing it. And I, I, sometimes sometimes human beings pick out struggles for themselves because they like to feel like they've accomplished something, I guess. And Wordle, Wordle's the name of that Wordle, game. Wordle, okay. Yeah, and you know, I, I think you know, a couple of times my wife has said, why don't you Wordle? I'm like, my brain is so worn out from basketball, I don't, I don't want to wear it out anymore. I don't know if there's anything left in there. But I, I, I kind of enjoy the intensity of, of – what we're doing, even though maybe not easy and successful. And there was some times last year, I wouldn't say I put it in cruise control, but I felt like, yeah, we're looking pretty good. It's not, it's not even a real struggle, it seems like right now. I got a struggle, but I'm enjoying it right now. That's beautiful. Well said. And do you give, do you give yourself any time to think and reflect on your place in the game and kind of the impact that you've made on the game? Especially again, you look at the list of people that are below you in terms of win percentage and the incredible longevity and success you've had. Do you take any time to reflect? Not so much on that. No. And I know there's other reasons. There's assistant coaches involved and good players. And, and, you know, I'm part of a process and, and it's not, 
obviously not just me, I'm, but I'm part of it. I know that. But I think the one thing that I'm like struggling to reflect on that's is the fact that we won a national championship last year and we were undefeated and we didn't have five or six points. I think it was only five games by less than 10 points. I was, we were never in a last shot situation in a game and we're playing the national championship game. And I look back and we're playing against the school I worked at for 28 years. And, you know, being a math guy, there's 318 teams. If you pick randomly two teams, and said, what's the chance of these two teams playing in the national championship? It would be one in 100,000. Now, I know maybe our program at West Liberty were stronger, so those numbers weren't quite that bad. But that's the one that I reflect on. I'm thinking, I'm not sure I can quite grasp how crazy that last season was. It's absolutely incredible, and there should be a movie about it. There should be documentaries about it. I mean, Coach, it's, I couldn't believe it myself when I saw that that was the final, and obviously you could see it potentially coming on both sides of the bracket, but just beautiful, and a tremendous reflection of you and all that you've done for the game and for those two programs, and just amazing. And, and people don't understand necessarily because they think, you know, it's just been so easy, but when you started at Nova Southeastern, that program was not very good. <laughs> And you turned it right away into what it is. And it's why I went there. You know, I I had had an agent at that time, and, and I had told him before that I have to go somewhere where they haven't had any success because I had no reason to leave West Liberty. It was a great place. It was a great place to coach. I had a great team coming back. Everything was was comfortable to win at that time. But there was some questions in my mind about you know West Liberty hadn't had a hadn't had a twenty one season in fifty years and. And all of a sudden, we're winning 25, 30 games. And I I wondered, how did it happen? Because I wasn't a coach that had success a lot of places. I was in a place I'd been a coach. And I thought, you know, maybe it was just luck or the pieces fell together for me. And, and, I, and I told my wife, I, I, need this, I need to try to do this again to kind of prove to myself, you know, it can be done. And I, I need to go somewhere that's been losing. So Nova had been losing. They were come off. They were last in the league. And but there, but with that, even though they were last in the league and they hadn't had a twenty-one season, there were some other factors there that I thought this is not a bad place to build a basketball program. It's a good school, good education, big university, good facility, good location. Coach, once again, I'm so honored to have the chance to talk to you. And I'm just so so grateful on behalf of the community for you to be able to share with us some of these insights into coaching and what's led to your success. So thank you so much for sharing with us. Coach, it's always great talking to you, Chris. I know you're you got that basketball junkie mind and and you know, we always have great conversations. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for listening. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and to give the Basketball Podcast and this week's guest a shout out on social media to show your support for us sharing the game. And to stay up to date on all things Basketball Immersion, subscribe to our newsletter at basketballimmersion.com newsletter.